Hey Radio Rothbard fans, the Mises Institute has a new free book for you. Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at Mises.org slash RothPodFree. Hey guys, this is Thoat Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to Mises.org slash raffle, that's double R, raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, Mises.org slash events. So I hope to see you guys there, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin with the Mises Institute, and with me is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the situation in Texas, which has led to all sorts of related issues um, about the border, about secession, about uh, what what could happen going forward, uh, depending on the outcome of the current standoff. And so the basic details, in case you haven't been following closely, is that the governor of Texas, and probably largely uh, the government, the state government of Texas overall, uh, feels that the amount of migration across the border, which at this point is pretty much uh, uncontrolled in that it's it's not that new migrants are even being uh, screened for crime or associations with cartels or smuggling or any of that. It's, it's not even an unlimited immigration situation. It's essentially a total lack of screening or uh, control of the border in any way. So many residents of Texas, of course, find this concerning, uh, given the potential for crime and other issues. And the federal government, of course, has done very, very little in terms of lessening the number of migrants across the border. So the governor of Texas has decided that uh, he is going to essentially declare an emergency at the border using uh, Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, which says that states can act on their own and ally with other states without authorization from the federal government in case of invasion. Uh, whether or not this constitutes, this basically unchecked migration across the border constitutes an invasion uh, could be debated. However, it would seem to me that the text of the section makes it clear that 
making a call as to whether it's an invasion or not is actually up to the state in question. Because of course, if the federal government got to decide whether it was an invasion or not, then that section of the Constitution would have no purpose, where the whole idea here is that the state can act on its own based on its own judgment. And so that's what Texas is doing now, is they're declaring that, yes, this does constitution invade, constitute an invasion. We are going to close the border ourselves, which the federal government has refused to do. And they're not even like closing, closing the border. They're just attempting to get some handle on the sheer volume of migration that's occurring. And this has been especially um, the hot around uh, a couple of specific locations along the border, most notably a place called Eagle Pass in Texas. Those sorts of details I don't think are particularly important to our discussion today. But the, the, the basic facts are a state government has decided that the federal government is not following its own laws at the border, and so therefore the state government will intervene uh, to implement its own policies there at the border. And the Biden administration has said, no, no, we're in charge of the border, and you have 24 hours uh, to comply. Well, he's done that at least twice now, and those 24-hour periods have come and gone, and the Biden administration has done nothing. Uh, they have also sued, of course. The Supreme Court said yes. The federal government can go in and remove um, this razor wire and other physical barriers that have been put up in this place because for some reason the federal government, um, uh, well, I think they've claimed it's in violation of some international treaty, which is highly dubious, uh, and is claiming that, yeah, we need to go in and remove these uh, physical border impediments just as they were doing in Arizona and other parts of the border where they were like, well, you can't build your own wall. You can't put these storage containers up uh, to thwart invasion uh, or migration, however you wish to define it. And the feds actively go in and then tear up the border um, to whatever, whatever sort of makeshift wall has been put there. And this, of course, is bad optics for the Biden administration in terms of they look absolutely obsessed with this idea of just making the border as open as possible. And uh, on libertar in libertarian circles, right, uh, the debate is totally different than debates between normal people, right? Like <laughs> ordinary people are uh, not impressed by what the Cato Institute says about open borders or whatever. And so the political situation really has nothing to do with some internal debates among libertarians and stuff. This is really a situation where U.S. citizens, including Hispanics, who uh, are not enthusiastic about open borders at all unless they went to uh, graduate school and were sufficiently brainwashed by an American college, um, they, they're not in favor of, of uh coyotes like you know, shipping insane numbers of people over the border. So politically, it's a, uh, it's, it's a bad situation for Biden, but from the point of view of the regime, they can't just not do anything because they have to assert their control over the border and act like they get to push states around on this topic and pretty much any, every topic. So... It's a fairly tense situation uh, in terms of what we're usually used to seeing in terms of state resistance to federal power. Um, 
because these these Republican groups that that make a little bit of noise about opposing federal power, they usually buckle under like at the first sign of uh, assertion of federal power. Um, we start hearing from conservatives about how, oh, you need to uh, respect federal supremacy. You need to think in terms of national unity. Uh, law and order demands that you just do whatever the federal government says. And this is one of the few cases we're actually starting to see some significant pushback at the state level. Um, and the media is not covering it very much. And uh, it's it's kind of hard to get an idea what exactly is the current situation, but it does appear that it is a real standoff and that Biden has not been making any headway and his threats uh, are not actually being heeded by the state government in any way. Um, but I don't know, though, you probably have some a better sense of, of what the locals are saying. I mean, what's what's the thinking on how this is what's the end game here how is this going to turn out what uh, what what's the state government likely to do in the the medium term here well i think there's there's some value and kind of focusing on some of the nuances with the specifics of what the supreme court said and which which will then feed into i think a broader view on what this means and so what the um, Supreme Court ruling, it was, it was an injunction. It was not a decision about the broader constitutional ramifications of this tension. Um, it dealt with a, uh, an area called Shelby Park, um, which has 47 acres of razor wire that Texas has put in place. The feds tried to access Shelby Park. The state authorities prevented federal access to Shelby Park. They won a early federal court decision validating the state's control over that area. And the Supreme Court's decision was to override that opinion and creating a at least temporary situation where the feds would conceivably have access to that park and could therefore, in theory, go about with their mission, their goal of entering that area, which was the destruction of the razor wire barriers that Texas has put in place. Now, um, that, and of course that was a 5-4 decision with Amy Comey Barrett joining uh, John Roberts with, with the left there. Um, now, the larger conversation, um, which I think, you know, so, I, I, so, so in, in the short term, there has kind of been there's, there's an uneasy um, detente right now between Biden's border patrol and the Texas government. Um, you know, there's been some language out there from the border patrol that you know, we've got a good working relationship with Texas, um, which I don't know if Texas would agree with right now. Um, they have not gone in and guns a blazing and followed through on their desired ends, which is the removal of that razor wire. Um, and I think you know, where things, where the next stand is, there's kind of two, I think, important um, pressure points, one more immediate than the other. Um, one is that you have a, another one of these large caravans coming to the Eagle Pass area, which is um, expected by, you know, ex uh, you know uh, estimates out there will come next, uh, uh, at the end of the week, early next week. Um, so that will be, you know, so, so, so that will be an important, very you know, direct, you know, on the ground sort of dynamic there. How does that process play out? Now, and, when uh, you say caravan, uh, who's in this caravan? 
Yeah, it's you know, people from all. You know, see a large, large group of migrants that are working themselves up through South America, and of course, within that, obviously, we're not talking simply about South Americans either. You know, it's a whole. You know, so it's one of these large waves. It's kind of kind of a, a, a migration hurricane that you can kind of track, right? Rather than uh, than kind of the, the usual um, uncontrolled, you know, just the, the usual back and forth there. So this is going to be a kind of a big, a big push, a big wave um, coming into this area. And of course, the second one will be the larger Supreme Court uh, arguments there, which I think will will then kind of go to the question and the the issues that the Texas governor has made about Texas's the state authority to declare an invasion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that's why I think in the short term, um, you know, we haven't seen some sort of big boogaloo, right? You know, we haven't seen federal uh, authorities being arrested. We haven't really seen the you know, that, that this state versus federal showdown yet is because I think both sides are sort of waiting, I think, particularly for the lawfare front on seeing what the next step in the Supreme Court is is going to do. Now, that's that's the nuance of the very specific situation as it exists right now. But of course, all of this is going to end up leading to these broader conversations. And I think what's, what's interesting is that for one, um, for one, you have, and as you mentioned, usually federal government, state governments buckle at the at any sort of federal pressure. We start to see some pushback to that normal submissiveness um, play out with COVID. Um, we have seen it play out with um, on the on the left. I mean, again, this, the, the irony, of course, is that the left has had no problem flaunting federal laws when it comes to sanctuary cities, when it's come to some of these other dynamics there. Um, but I think COVID was really the first time we saw kind of a willingness to start really using this muscle um, on the right in a way that I think still carries over into the way that some of these state leaders um, view this, you know, are starting to view these topics. And I, I think no surprise, um, part of this, of course, you know, anytime we talk about any political dynamic, there's a heavy dose of opportunism. Um, and that that should be acknowledged as playing a role here, right? You know, I'm not going to suggest that all of a sudden, um, you know, 25 Republican governors, you know, have found their inner John C. Calhoun and, and have a very intellectual sort of uh, viewpoint on the proper uh, compact dynamics between the feds and the state. Um, you know, but we have seen, you know, 25 Republican governors, I think it's 25 of the 26, if, if my numbers are correct, out there. I think Vermont is the only Republican governor that has not sort of joined in to this sort of broader, um, at the very least, rhetorical support for Texas here. Um, there have been states, including Florida and others, that have sent um, members of their own um, you know, uh, law enforcement agencies. Um, in Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis is looking for authorization to uh, be able to utilize his state guard, which is separate from the National Guard. Um, this is one of his projects that he booted up about a year and a half ago um, so that you know, if you are a member of the Florida State Guard, they would be authorized to be able to go into Texas and border areas to deal with that. Um, so, you know, from from that dynamic, you have on one part, you have the lowest hanging fruit, right? It's simply writing a letter saying, you know, we stand with Texas. You have some states that are putting skin in the game in terms of resources going to Texas. And then all of this is going to culminate in terms of this larger legal battle. And you know, when it comes to the issues that Biden has, again, since you know, political opportunism and calculation, particularly in an election year, matters more than anything else um, with these decisions, that you know, the, the difficult situation that Biden finds himself in is that I think this is an issue where Democrats are generally divided. 
Um, younger Democrats are the radical true believers that are, you know, wanting to see Biden, you know, kind of go, you know, full Waco kind of on Texas if need be. Um, you know, they want to you know, find a, a modern day General Sherman, uh, might be wearing a dress these days, but that's a whole nother situation. And um, going down there and taking care of business and asserting federal authority. There are other um, Democrats, um, interestingly enough, you know, John Fetterman being one of the leaders there, um, that, you know, kind of recognize that immigration and the border generally has been an election um, non-starter, is, is, is a detriment um, to the perceptions of democratic governance writ large. Um, and so, you know, there has been a lot of push for moderation of kind of what is, what is going on there. There's a, a additional dynamic specific to the border where you have kind of moderate Republicans trying to craft a deal with um, Democrats that, you know, they have, of course, they want to tie it into, oh, well, you know, we're going to have some sort of um, moderate immigration policy that will allow, you know, 5,000 migrants a day pass the border. Um, and then we'll start getting serious about it after that, that wave hits. Um, uh, and then we're going to attach this very serious proposal with, of course, money going overseas and various conflicts and the like. That, I think, has largely been stymied because, again, some of the, the political opportunism, you know, I, I don't see a lot of appetite from congressional Republicans to pass that, but that's also going on. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the divide within the Democratic Party is interesting. And, of course, Biden is now a situation where if he doesn't go, um, you know, if, if, if he doesn't go full Lincoln on Texas, then he will be perceived as weak. If he goes full Lincoln, he is going, um, he is doing so on an issue that is overwhelmingly unpopular um, with the majority of voters, including most uh, most Democrats at this point. And so, you know, does he want to seem impotent? Does he want to seem uh, harsh, but you know, strong, but on a on an electoral losing issue? And so, you know, surprisingly, again, if you had told me that Greg Abbott uh, would be the, the the Republican have a backbone on this issue, um, I would be shocked. Shocked if uh, if you told me that a year ago, but you know I think this combination of low hanging political fruit that creates just an easy political win, combined with a greater willingness of Republican governors to sort of assert their authority, and with a issue that is so you know I think just obviously insane to average people out there, um, has created this very interesting storm. That um, you know, I, I can't think of an issue where the feds. I mean, maybe maybe like late stage COVID craziness, um, where the public opinion polls had really kind of shifted away from the trusty expert sort of identity, and where they're really you know they were continuing to try to you know make you wear a mask on airlines and some of the some of the stuff. The very end of that um, is is probably a little bit similar, um, but for the most part, I'm not, I don't think there's been an issue quite like this where the feds are genuinely on the defensive. And I think some of that is the reason why we, we've seen this situation kind of had a, a slight um, uh, detente. And it will be interesting to see what that next wave looks like, uh, particularly when the, the, the court and some of those issues start factoring in more. Well, and uh, things have definitely changed on the immigration issue as well, given that the amount of support that Republicans and conservatives, and of course, I mean rank and file, not the leadership, um, because certainly guys like McConnell would rather the whole thing completely went away. Uh, but certainly at the state level, given the enthusiasm among many governors for helping Abbott on the issue, at least in word, if not in any deeds, uh, this is a very big shift from what even I was dealing with as a columnist just 
10 years ago, uh, because in, say, in the late 90s, when uh, California was a much different place, they they, uh, approved in a state referendum, uh, or rather uh, had voted on a state referendum that would control access of migrants to tax-funded benefits. There was actually quite a bit of support for that in California at the time. Arizona had some similar measures. And in all of those cases, federal judges came in and said, no, 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 uh, states cannot do anything to limit migration. Uh, immigration is fully and wholly uh, the domain of the federal government. And when I supported state measures designed uh, to take control of the border away from the federal government, I received many, many emails uh, and also the I, I'd see comments in social media saying that, oh, this McMahon guy is totally wrong. The federal government should be completely in charge of immigration. The Constitution says so. Um, that's completely false. Actually, the Constitution does not empower uh, any the federal government to control migration. As you can see in the first hundred years of policy, there was no uh, substantial federal role in migration. And it was clear that most people in Washington thought that was just the way it should be, that the idea that the federal government should control migration was an invention uh, of the 1880s and afterward. And we should know, by the way, the U.S. did not have an open border in that time either, as state governments had quite a few policies designed to control migration overall. Now, of course, in many parts of the country where it was basically empty, they didn't care much about migration. So there were lots of different policies you found in different parts of the country. But the point is, is that it was not a federal issue. However, at some point, uh, conservatives uh, in the 20th century decided, yep, the federal government should be completely in charge of this and got really upset if you said that states should have a major role in border control. And only in the last few years, have, and perhaps uh, it may be connected, just as you say, though, to this uh, COVID-related assertion that state governments maybe uh, shouldn't be so spineless and passive and that they actually have a role to play in national policy, uh, they suddenly decide, oh, yeah, well, maybe since the federal government is doing nothing, maybe state governments should actually have a role here. So conservatives, it seems, have finally given up on their fantasy that the federal government would come in and take charge and close the border and do, and uh, uh, fulfill their wishes that way, that it just simply isn't going to happen, uh, which is uh, reasonable to expect because people who live in Northern Virginia and in wealthy communities in Washington, they have no skin in the game when it comes to borders and border states. Well, and I think that's another dynamic to where you know, something that is, is fueling uh, this as well is again, if we take away, you know, if, if we apply our, our cynical viewpoint on the true motivations of politicians, right? The way to, for, for one, we look at the national politics, and national politics is a complete clown show. Um, and and to be, and, and I, I think there's very few people serving in D.C. that are particularly enjoying their lives right now. Now there's some, don't, don't get me wrong. There's, there's plenty that, you know, they're, they, that, that love being in the mud, right? They love being treated as a very 
special person. They love all the benefits that come with being a congressman and going around D.C. and and living that life. Um, I think there is a a large portion, though, of Congress that for all their other faults, um, and there are many, um, that you know there is a, a a segment that care at the if if not for a specific set of issues um, with that might be riddled with contradictions and the like, right? I'm, I'm not saying that they have any, any sort of serious intellectual viewpoint in the world, but there are certain issues that they really care about that you're not getting done. And the other side is, you know, they might be more serious about their next gig. And so their desire is to rise up the ranks to, um, to get in a spot that gets them a very nice Wikipedia page and maybe a book written for them, written about them, um, after they have have left this world, right? You know, they they care about this legacy, and it's very difficult to do anything that will you know that people are going to to want to visit your tombstone right now with the way the federal government works. And so, because the federal level of politics is such a a, a freak show, it's such a a bubbling cauldron of incompetency. Where the only thing to get, you know, the only way to really get stuff done is if you happen to be a you know kind of an activist regulator one way or another. Um, then that has created a dynamic where the way to um, create a legacy is by utilizing as much authority and power as you can wield at that state level. Um, if you are a serious person, then you know, I think there's a broad recognition that you, know, you can actually do things at that state level. We've actually seen a number of congressmen um, and, and relatively you know, people that are better than most of DC. I don't want to give sort of broad endorsements there, but we've seen um, a lot of the people that have been sort of the, the substantive crit- uh, critics of, you know, say Kevin McCarthy and the like, um, that are actually leaving DC and filing to be uh, you know, their attorney general or their chief financial officer. Um, so we're not even talking about governor's offices, but you know, other kind of state executive offices because they recognize. That you know, if you actually want to get anything done, the states are where it's at, and so I think this is part of this is positioning for a you know whenever the post Trump control of the GOP is, and, and I think there's there's no better way of kind of showing your your conservative bona fides right now. And I think this is a positive thing than thumbing your nose at DC um, and the like. And it just we just so happens. I mean, this is why you know Ron DeSantis was seen as a strong candidate. But the problem is, is that so long as Trump just sort of embodies revenge and anger and frustration amongst the rank and file, you know, there's no pathway as long as Trump is there. And I think that's there's a there's a secondary dynamic to this. And I think that this is um, um, one that that really puts the 2024 election in a very interesting context. Is that you know obviously you know Trump is enemy number one um, amongst you know Washington D.C. folks, amongst the the journalist class, amongst the mainstream media, amongst major institutions, yada yada yada. Um, but ultimately, if if you are thinking, if you are part of the regime, then I think that the the few intelligent people that have been able to crack into that world. Um, would come to recognize that ultimately the only way, that the best way to sort of defend the status quo that has made those that are part, that are that are inside that club, you know, rich and happy, um, you want to maintain a level of legitimacy for the power structure that exists. And the best way to 
the to to keep to restore the status quo is through Trump winning office, right? Because if 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 Trump loses, and regardless of why, you know, you know, you know let's, let's let's take out, um, you know, genuine, uh, con- you know, uh, uh, coordinated efforts on you know changing ballot numbers and like like you know just genuine like vulgar. Um, electoral theft and fraud, um, and I, I think 2020 was was closer to that with all the reasons we've talked about in the past, if not procedurally, um, as much procedurally as any other, you know, mules or voting machine hijinks or things like that. Um, you know, they they went full full throttle in 2020. Um, this time around, at the very least, I think you're going to see Trump being convicted for something just based off of the way that his uh, his legal stuff is already going. Um, if Trump loses. Um, regardless of the reason why, it will be seen by obviously his, his base on the Republican Party, which, which makes up the overwhelming majority of the GOP, but also a, a large group of people that are disillusioned with the regime for other reasons, right? You know, the easiest, you know, I'm just going to call it kind of the Joe Rogan crowd, right? The, the people that um, they're not particularly partisan, they're not going to be out there with with red MAGA hats um, in general, but they they kind of have this underlying feeling that the institutions are corrupt. Um, you know, they, they, they might be, uh, you know, a lot of them are, are libertarians amongst us. Right. And, you know, there is for those that have sort of gut suspicions about the regime rather than, you know, are going to critique federal reserve policy or the intricacies of foreign policy, right. The, the, those that are, are, you know, the word out there has been like thrown around as like folk libertarians. Um, if, if, Biden wins again, that's only going to further cement with, again, I think, of, you know, half the country that the regime is willing to do whatever it takes to prop itself up that will further delegitimize the entire, you know, kind of civics one-on-one, you know, myths um, that, that are myths, right? You know, that, that doesn't change. That doesn't mean the system is working if, if Trump wins, right? But um, it will make even more apparent the critiques that we have long had about the political order in a way that you start dealing with that size of the population. Um, again, this is classic, you know, Rothbardian analysis of the anatomy of the state. Um, that is where things get interesting. And I think that creates a dynamic where, you know, so if, if you are anti-regime um, and let's just say that for, for whatever reason, you may not trust Trump as really being an, an agent of, of chaos and revenge should he win an election. Um, then there's a case that could be made that the best outcome to continue this this um, rise of institutional delegitimization is a Biden victory, which I think would continue this wave where making a name for yourself, all the all these political factors that are making it very attractive to be the the anti DC leader at the state level. Well, only those incentives will only get bigger, and so I, I'm I'm interested to see that you know what starts with a conflict over you know essentially a, a debate over anarcho tyrannism anarcho tyranny at the border can end up becoming um, can end up broadening to other ways that states identify things, and these are you know we, we've talked a lot about these issues in the past, everything from defend the guard to um, you know. Hopefully, eventually, to you know, full on like, you know, tax rebellion and things like that, right? There's all sorts of of non um, <laughs> say military, non Fed posting options that states can do to really become 
a thorn in the side of federal supremacy. And I, I think these dynamics are, you know, this this is what I think someone like a Greg Abbott, again, who is not, you know, John C. Calhoun reincarnated, um, you know, that is what is fueling these ambitious politicians at the state level. And that dynamic is something that, you know, I think we we want to keep alive um, regardless of what happens in 2024. So if, if I think the, the you know, that dynamic going into this election, I, and you even see it a little bit, um, you know, when they had the, 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 the latest, you know, World Economic Forum gathering in Davos, right? You saw people like, um, like Jamie Dimon, Right, say that you know, look, I'm I'm not a not a MAGA person, but some of their concerns are valid. You, you started to see at the very like, lip service. I'm not suggesting any sort of genuine change in in you know, underlying philosophy or, or world viewpoint, but you're starting to see some people saying we need to take these concerns seriously because they recognize that enough of these people completely giving up on the legitimacy of the order is a threat to those that have benefited the most from it. And so I think that calculation, obviously, there's going to be plenty of of blind, rabid, partisan Democrats or those that see Trump as insult, whatever, you know, sort whatever villainous figure you want, you want, they'll never, you know, these are the true believers, they're, they're never going to be, they don't have the, the intellectual ability um, to view anything other than orange man bad. But I think you'll start seeing a few of the genuinely intelligent folks, I, th- I think they kind of recognize that, um, again, a, a Trump victory might not be the worst thing in the world in terms of defending what they have long enjoyed. Yeah, if you buy into democratic theory and the idea that uh, democracy helps um, diffuse tensions, uh, helps everybody feel like they're part of one people and, and helps translate the will of the people into uh, the uh, into policy. These are not things I particularly find convincing. However, this is certainly these are very this is a very popular ideology, uh, and many people feel that democracy works in the sense that it keeps us united and um, helps everybody translate their own desires in some way through compromise and uh, through negotiation into policy at the regime level. But that if you, however, make it clear to a large portion of the voting public, say half of it uh, or a sizable minority of it, that you don't win national elections anymore. And you basically say, yeah, well, Trump isn't going to win and we're going to make sure whoever comes after him in the spirit of Trump, he's not going to win either. Uh, we've got a blue wall to ensure that Democrats always win uh, the presidency and we control the federal bureaucracy. Well, at that point, then the very idea of democracy breaks down because now you've got a sizable portion of the population that doesn't see how we could possibly ever win representation then at the national level. Uh, so once you feel then they are in a permanently excluded group electorally, then you don't regard the national government with legitimacy anymore. And so then you turn toward, okay, well, the only place we can win a majority is at the state level. So I guess that's the only place we can do stuff. And so, yeah, I completely agree. If if people start to get the impression that they're never going to win at the national level again, suddenly all the the hopes of any sort of change to the status quo have to be done at the state level. So uh, you're going to see people double down on that 
and you're going to see more of these conflicts. I completely agree. Now, the way it's framed, of course, by much of the media is, oh, this is the prelude to secession. It's also framed this way among some activists. Uh, but I think maybe more the issue is, and you start to see the phrase soft secession crop up a bit more in a lot of discussions of issues like this. I think this is perhaps more a manifestation of that. Uh, but there's so much gray area between, okay, doing whatever the feds say, buckling under to federal quote unquote supremacy, whatever that even means, because it kind of is redefined constantly to just do whatever the federal government wants to do. Um, so there's a difference between just going along with that and the feds doing whatever they want. And then of course, outright, Hey, we're an independent country. Now there is a lot that can happen between those two things. And so do you think then that this will really start to push us further in that direction, even if Trump wins? Because I say that Trump wins and then he leaves in four years. I mean, is that even enough then to really put the genie back in the bottle and go back to, oh, well, I guess I guess everything's fine in Washington now? Well, I think that's an interesting question. Um and, and, and I, I think there's some reason for optimism there. And I think the, the biggest sign of optimism um, uh, is the way that the average Trump voter viewed COVID and in particular the vaccines of COVID. Because again, this is something that Trump um, – you know, he doesn't talk about a lot anymore. But this, is, this was something that Trump, because of his ego, um, he couldn't help himself but continue to brag about Operation Warp Speed um, months, you know, years after he left office. And in spite of that, in spite of Trump going out in front of these rallies, like the only time that Trump himself would be booed, right, which is different than, you know, when he brings up, you know, Lindsey Graham or, you know, some of these despicable figures on stage with him, is when he would say nice things about Pfizer or the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed, you know, these sort of things, right? And Trump had to sort of readjust his entire campaign um, when the way that he talked about COVID on trying to make you know, DeSantis out to be, you know, the Dr. Fauci lover, um, even though it was Trump that gave him a presidential medal of honor, right? So again, ignore the cognitive dissonance that is required to square those two things. I mean, you know, this, you know, this is part of human nature, right? Um, but I think that the, um, the anger and the frustration, these scars, that have been inflicted are not going to go away simply if Trump wins in 2024 the same way that they didn't go away simply um, after Trump won in 2016. So my hope is that that, that is the, a sign of a, a deeper distrust, a, a hatred of the regime that is bigger than the personality of one man. Um, of course, there's going to be a conversation, I think the biggest tip off over um, any the, the value of the Trump administration is going to come into who he chooses as VP. If he chooses a a safe um, sort of moderate, um, you know, particularly you know, I, I think you know, very likely someone who um, is designed to court, let's say, your your uh, Nikki Haley uh, dissident Republican voter, someone who's going to appeal to suburban wine moms and the like. You know, if it's someone like a you know, someone who 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 is who's outwardly very loyal to Trump himself individually, someone like an Elise Stefanik or, or maybe like a Joni Ernst in Iowa who is, you know, a Liz Cheney figure that just happens to be able to castrate a cow. Um, you know, someone like a, a, a 
some of these figures whose value to Trump is their willingness to praise him no matter what happens, um, rather than um, either someone you know relatively boring but like a genuine political outsider like let's say Ben Carson or you know perhaps most ideally someone who has been very comfortable um, you know, throwing bombs at the regime, you know, someone like a, a Vivek Ramaswamy um, or, or Rand Paul, right? Um, depending on that decision, I think it's going to be very illustrative of what we might expect from the Trump administration. Um, and, and I think that will kind of help set the, the stakes at play in um, 2024. But I think that, the, again, the, the, the good thing is that I, I can't, I don't think there's anything, I think, it, I think that a lot of the damage has been done. The question is, if you have a a functioning democracy in a way that Trump has the ability to win, I think that will lead to the continuation of the idea that we can vote our ways, you know, vote our way out of it, right? You know, there'll be plenty of rationalization for why Trump couldn't do X, Y, and Z after he promises X, Y, and Z. Oh, well, you know, he didn't have enough of the Senate. He didn't have enough of Congress. Uh, uh, you know, it was the Supreme Court that was stopping decisions. All the excuses that were made after 2016, um, you know, they, they, they won't fault, I don't think, Trump, the individual. And I think some of that tension will burn down. So maybe you go from half the country thinking that elections are rigged to, you know, 25% uh, of the country or 30% of the country that has that. I think, you know, I think that can cool off an, an element of that. Um, and again, continue to have national politics be the focus and the emphasis, um, which I think would be a, a, a step in the wrong direction. Um, but I, I think a lot of those grievances that are um, that Trump embodies will continue on. And the question is just how long until that becomes something tangible and meaningful in terms of, of pushing back against the state. And again, that creates this very interesting environment where, you know, is the path to you know, thinking about this from what is the best way for an ambitious politician to get ahead? Is it being Trump's heir apparent in 2028? Or is it to really bolster your anti-DC bona fides at the state level and, you know, is, is, is in those two dynamics, being a sycophant or being a, a state leader, um, you know, what ends up paying out the most in a post-Trump environment is, I think, going to have the biggest impact on where the energy, attention, resources, money, where activists, you know, all those, all those nuts and bolts things that go into any sort of political movement, um, where that is focused on going forward. And I, I, I have no idea how that will go. I think there are reasons to. I think you can make a case both sides based off of the way that we've seen primaries gone, or primaries go, the way that we've seen um, state and and you know, national political parties go. But I think that's going to be kind of one of the the, the lingering questions um, that is going to dictate whether this building of tension and anger and resentment ends up being something meaningful or ends up being something that is contained, undermined, and you know might help set the stage for the progressives or the, the left, whatever you want to call the other side of this, you know, the regime um, being able to overcome this short period, relatively short period of inconvenience and um, uh, uh, concern and end up just further solidifying their control over the entire apparatus. All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Radio Rothbard. I really have no idea how the current situation is going to end. Um, but yeah, I think it's putting in place a lot of these trends, or at least making clear a lot of these trends that I think have really been building since about 2018 or so. 
Um, but uh, yeah, very difficult to predict at this time. And there are some good trends in there, though, in terms of people are finally getting over their uh, their belief that the the federal government will finally finally get straightened out and set everything right. I think there's the loss of faith in that as an institution that uh, that can fix anything continues uh, to build. And from our point of view, that's that's all for the best. So thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Rothbard. We will be back next week with another one. So we'll see you next time. Bye.